Uh, we're starting a new series tonight, The Promises of God. We're starting it now. We're not doing it next week because I'm doing a, a service uh, for the, the youth. Uh, but over the next few months, we're going to consider the promises of God on Sunday nights. I haven't decided exactly how many we're going to do. I think my initial draft was 11. I don't know if I'm going to stick to that or not. We'll see. But we're going to go over the, the promises of God on Sunday nights. Now, obviously not all of them. I, I, it's hard to say. It's tricky if you do... If you do go, I did a Google search and then I did some more in-depth research. The, the, how many promises of God there are in the Bible? There's anywhere between the most common numbers that I saw, 7,000 and 8,100. And you're thinking to yourself, that's ridiculous. That's so high. Yeah, it is so high. Most of those are specific promises to individuals in the Old Testament. That's why that number is so high. It's not that we would say there's 8,100 promises to us in the Bible, uh, but God makes promises between 7,000 and 8,100 times in the Bible, many of those to individuals in the Old Testament that are fulfilled and then they're over and done and that's it. There are, however, of course, many promises in the Bible made to us, intended to apply not just to us, not just to individual recipients in the text, but really all of God's children. Uh, and, and actually quite a few that apply to all people, not just God's people, but all people. So we're going to be looking at uh, uh, some of these promises as we go through this series. Tonight we're going to be begin with a broad overview of this topic, the promises of God. Why study the promises? What should we think about the promises? What are some common misunderstandings? What are some ways we're going to get into trouble thinking about these things? So that's what we're going to do tonight. And then starting in two weeks, uh, we'll begin the specific promises of God for us as we go through these. Number one, of course, as we begin, why study the promises? There's a couple of really important reasons. 2 Corinthians 1, 16 through 22, which we see in here kind of an interesting uh, synergy between the very specific context and a broader purpose of promise. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Here, very specific thing, right? This is Paul. He's talking about his, his relationship with the Corinthians. Of course, it's not God making a promise here, but a lot of the promises in the Bible are on this vein. There's a specific historical thing that's going on. It happens. We move on. Paul's going to make a broader point, though. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Did I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim to you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, is not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. One of the things that we're going to go through uh, each time as we go through these promises of God is thinking about how they find their yes in Jesus. And we're going to find this statement to be profoundly true. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. But here's the point. Why study the promises? For this is why it is through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ, has anointed us, who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our heart as a guarantee. Why study the promises? Because in studying the promises, we can greater glorify God. We can affirm this word amen, right? We utter our amen to God. That is, yes, he's saying another version of yes, let it be so, his glory. 
we're going to see in the promises of God why we should glorify him. How he is glorified in those promises. The second thing, Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. This is, of course, talking about, uh, there's actually several promises to Abraham. The promise of descendants, the promise of land, the promise that he would be greater than, uh, that his descendants would be greater than the sand on the seashore. The most important promise, of course, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. Who's that then? That's us. The unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. That by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie... And the point that he's making here, of course, it's impossible for God to lie anyway. He just says, and then it happens. But God is wanting to do what? That we who fled for refuge might have strong encouragements to hold fast to the hope set before us. The point of the oath, he didn't have to swear an oath. He just, yes, and then it is. He swore an oath not for his own sake, not so that people would think he was lying, but for strong encouragement for us, that we would have hope. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone on a for, as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The point of the promises, why we should study them, is for our hope. So that we can be steadfast and sure and have confidence and strong encouragement. So, number one, the promises of God ultimately lead to God's own glory. That's why we're studying them, hopefully. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. The promises will show us a variety of things about God, his goodness, his greatness, valuable lessons about his character in some of these promises. So in doing, hopefully we're elevating and glorifying him. But of course, for us, the study of promises should reinforce hope that we would have strong encouragement. And there's sort of a feedback loop here. Knowledge of God leads to certainty of promise. That is, once we know more about him, we have more confidence in his promises. That confidence should lead us to more hope and trust. Right? I have more hope. I have more trust because I know more about God and I know his promises and I believe in them. And then I want to know more. I want to know more about him. I want to know more of his promises. Uh, I've got to pause real quick. It's that vent. Okay, it was driving me crazy. There's like a, and now you can hear, now you're never going to unhear it. It's been bothering me for the last five minutes. The, the vent is, why, I thought your, I thought your, like your, um, your pitch pipe on your phone was going off. It was driving me crazy. Uh, okay, anyway, now that I know what it is, we can tune it out. Indeed, most of the promises we're going to study in this lesson have an undercurrent of hope. That's the goal. Despite the present circumstances that might be bad or, or, or seem hopeless or cause us to despair, through the promises of God, hopefully we have hope. Some things to think about over the next few months as we look at these promises. A couple of different things I want to consider in this overview lesson. Broadly, two categories. There's promises for now. That is, God promises things to the Christian at this moment, in this time, in our lives. We think about providence, the promise for his presence, for comfort, for peace, and for wisdom. These are all promises for now, that we should have these things here. There's also going to be promises for the future, things that may not come to pass here, but hopefully in the future, right? And, and I will say, some of these promises for the future, not eternal life, of course, 
some of them, justice, return, and rest. And we think about this sort of, there's a, not a hard line here. The promise of justice, well, some of that might come to pass now. But ultimately, that's not a guarantee for now. That, that might be a bonus. But the real promise of justice is for later. Rest. We might have some rest now. Some rest from our labors, some times of refreshing, some times of renewal. But again, that's not guaranteed now. It is a guarantee for the future. The promise is for the future. So some of these things are going to be reserved specifically for eternity. There's a couple that bridge the gap. The promise of answers we're going to look at in one of these lessons. Again, there are some things we need to know now that God has promised to give us knowledge of now. But there's a lot more knowledge that is not promised to us till later. So there is, again, this sort of blending of these. And, of course, the promise of grace, which I would say is the, the ultimate bridge between the promises for now and the promises for the future, is grace. And you could phrase it a lot of different ways. We're going to lump a lot of things in the promise of grace, forgiveness, salvation, mercy. We're going to just lump them all into one thing. I've decided to use the word grace. But the promise of grace, that is, we can be forgiven, we can, have, uh, uh, we can have our guilt washed away, that's a promise for now that ultimately finds its greatest expression and benefit in the future. Remember, again, we're not studying all of the promises. These are just some of the ones, and I think this is a pretty good list of what we're doing. We, we may add one or subtract one here or there, but these are just the ones we're going to study. As we think about the promises, I want to keep in mind, of course, we have to keep in mind the word that I say so often that you've probably come to hate by now, is context. We need to keep in mind the context as we study the promises of God. Most of, and I can say this very confidently, most of the promises in the Bible do not apply to us. They just don't, based on the context of Scripture. 1 Kings 8.20, the Lord fulfilled his promise that he made. I have risen in the place of David, my father. This is Solomon talking about the promise to David. I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord has promised. I have built a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. The promise, a couple of promises. When we see this sort of blending here, the importance for context. The promise to David that you would have a descendant on the throne forever, well, that does apply to us in a way, right? Because Jesus is still king. The promise that David's descendant would build the temple, that doesn't apply to us at all. That Solomon, David's son, he's going to come and build the temple, that promise that God made to David. That's over. That's done. That, that doesn't have anything to do with me anymore. That's, that, that's been, I don't know, however long ago that was. 2,900 years ago, let's say. Almost 3,000 years ago that that ended. So again, we see some of the promises, they apply to us, or, or at least have relevance to us. Some of the promises don't. They just don't apply to us. Now, it's important to know them as we're building an idea of God's character and his trustworthiness and his faithfulness. But some of the promises are, are not for us. And in fact, I would say most of the promises. Jeremiah 29, 10. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and I'll fulfill you to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with me. That was Israel in exile, in captivity in Babylon. 70 years later, God's going to bring them back. As we're reading Jeremiah 29, 10, we see, ooh, here's a promise of God. It is a promise of God that is relevant because it shows God's character and his goodness and his faithfulness. But I'm not thinking that this 70-year period of time in exile is applying to me. I'm just, I, that's not for me. Just like a lot of the promises. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's easy to misapply. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I think probably the most misapplied verse in the entire Bible, some of you will, will know what I'm about to say, is the next verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans for you, declares the Lord, plans for future and not a hope to give you a uh, I bungled the thing, but you know what I'm saying. 
Uh, which, I don't know, maybe that's the most cited verse in Christian graduation speeches, speeches in all, of all time. That's in the context of the Israelites, right? That promise is not really for the modern Christian. It's not that it's untrue in, this, in the idea of it, but we've got to be careful to put our, our promises of God in context. Additionally, we must remember that many of the promises of God are conditional promises. They're a dual promise. It's really a promise. If you do this, I will do this. And if you behave this way, then I will do this instead. Some are not, of course. Some promises are unconditional. Genesis 8, 21. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. This is after the flood. For the, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. The importance of understanding this promise is as I have done. Because he is going to strike down every living creature. That's going to happen. What is he saying here? This promise unconditionally to Noah, never going to flood the earth again. That is a universal, unconditional promise. We can just be confident of that. The whole world will never be flooded again. Hooray! I like that promise. That's a good one. But again, putting it in context, the as I have done, pretty important, because God has also promised to strike down every living thing. Like That's also going to happen. Right? So the promise here that I'll never flood the earth, that's unconditional. But most of what we might call, and I'm going to put this in quotes, the most important. Why am I putting that in quotes? Because it's hard to rank promises of God in order of importance, right? If God says a thing, it's important that's by definition of who he is. But, you know, we can think about these things like grace and forgiveness and salvation and, and those things that are eternally significant, have broad application, apply to a variety of people throughout history and, and have a lot of significance in our lives. Most of those are conditional promises, we think about the promise of rest, Hebrews 4.1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. What's the, what's the warning here? The promise of rest still stands, but it is conditional. You might fail to obtain that promise. It is a promise, nonetheless, for rest, but it is a promise that is not universally granted. There is some condition upon it. So, as we think about all these considerations, I hope this leads us to the practical application for this series. And really, this is going to be the practical application, and we'll try to make some nuances as we apply this to different promises. The promises of God should motivate faithful obedience. Why we study the promises? One, to glorify God, to bring us more awareness of God's glory. Number two, hope and assurance and peace. Number three, to motivate us to obey. That's, in fact, what a lot of the promises are designed to do. Hebrews 6, 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, what, what is he saying, though we speak in this way? He's just got done talking about in Hebrews 6, Hebrews, end of Hebrews 5, you should be teachers, but you need someone to teach you the basic principles. Beginning of chapter 6, let's move beyond the basic principles. Let's get into some maturity. Hebrews 6, in the middle of Hebrews 6, if we continue sinning, right, if we, if we have escaped the, the defilement of the world and then we go back, that's a serious problem. He said all this bad stuff, but in this way, we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we're sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So he just got done saying a bunch of negative stuff, but... But we're confident that this is not applying to you. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope till the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
How did they inherit the promises? Through faith and patience. And of course, what exactly should we be imitating? Well, if we're thinking about in this context, the words here, earnestness and sluggish. Those are the key words here. That he just got done saying in Hebrews 5 and 6, let's move beyond the elementary principles. You need to be teachers. Don't go back into the way of sinning. Don't go back after you've received the knowledge of the truth. But keep being faithful. Keep doing good. Keep continuing to grow. And by doing that, you'll inherit the promise. Because the promises, again, most of them are conditional. And so a study of the promises is not just about hope and not just about understanding God's glory, but about motivating us. Hey, I want this promise. How do I get it? Well, here, through faith and patience, not being sluggish, but growing and learning and doing. 2 Peter 1 verse 3. His divine power had grant, has granted to us all things, granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which, by what, by his own glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He's granted us his promises by what? By, actually could go even further back. By his power, through knowledge, through his glory and excellence, he has granted us the promises. And what are they intended to help us do? To partake in the divine nature. Again, some of them for now, some of them for the future. But in either case, the promises are designed so that we may partake in his essence, his glory, his goodness. So that what? We will escape the corruption of the world. That's what we're going for here. Now to this end, Peter says some stuff in the next few verses. Verse 5, for this very reason. For what reason? Because he gave us the promises to partake in the divine nature so we could escape the sinful snare of the world. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, remember what the Hebrew writer says? Do not be sluggish. Here, Peter says it in the positive. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities, what qualities? Virtue, self-control, godliness, steadfastness, etc. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. What's the point? God gave us these promises, great promises, I love them so much, to partake, to, to think about this for a minute, to partake in the divine nature, to partake in his very essence. Of course, we do that in the promise of the Holy Spirit, right? Repent and be immersed, you'll receive forgiveness of your sins, and this promise is for you and for your children, all who are far off. To receive the Spirit within us, to partake of His very essence, is a profound promise. But understanding that promise leads to what? Hopefully, improvement, growth, faithful, steadfast endurance and obedience. That we add, we supplement our faith with these qualities. And we grow and we learn and we do and we obey. 2 Corinthians 7.1, this will I think be the last verse we read. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The promises of God are a double-edged sword. We have 
the promises, since we have them. That's great. Awesome. But bringing holiness to completion, what? In the fear of the Lord. Because the more we understand about God, and again, studying the promises of God to understand Him, to glorify Him, to bring to mind His qualities, the more knowledge we build of God, the second part of this comes up. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Because I have total confidence. The more I have confidence in His promises, hooray, I have more hope because I have more confidence. I have more trust. I have more faith. But I also have more fear. Because I believe that the things that he has said will come to pass. And not all of those things are pleasant. Not all of those things are joyful. Some of them involve wrath and retribution and discipline. So the promises of God serve as a double-edged sword to encourage, to comfort, to motivate but ultimately to help us stay on track, right? The greatest source of hope, peace, and comfort to those who are in the process of cleansing themselves. And if you're in that process, you are cleansing yourself from every defilement of body and spirit. We know that's a long-term process. It doesn't happen overnight, but you're doing the best you can. You're asking for forgiveness. You're removing sin when you find it. You're drawing closer to other Christians. You're going through that process. Then guess what? The promises of God are a source of hope for you and peace. For you, but to those who are not doing that, who are not making an effort to be closer to Him, who are not trying to cleanse themselves from the defilements of the body and spirit, who are not trying to draw closer to God, the promises of God are a source of worry and fear because they're going to happen. So, this series, hopefully, the dual nature of preaching, I, I think I quoted this a couple of weeks ago in Sunday morning class. To comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. I don't know which one you are. Either way, I hope you'll gain something out of this study as we go through the study of the promises of God. And we'll offer the invitation as we think about the invitation. We're going to sing in just a minute, Just As I Am. One of the great promises of God is that he is no respecter of persons. He shows no partiality. But whoever comes to him on his terms, as he desires, with an, a humble, contrite spirit. We talked about that again in our Bible class this morning. Those who will come to him with a contrite and broken spirit. Doesn't matter what your past is. We talked about that with Zacchaeus, right? Doesn't matter what your past is, what you've done, where you came from. Come to him as you are on his terms. He's ready to receive you. He will, as he has promised, cleanse you, forgive you, and grant you peace. If you're ready, 